He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, by the washing of regeneration, even the renewal by the Holy Spirit. As we come to this point of the service where we're going to focus on the teaching of God's Word, I want to make sure that, uh, first of all, are we seeing what we're supposed to be seeing? Okay, so somewhere between Friday afternoon and this morning, the gremlins got in, and uh, so we're not communicating between the, the computer and the back, so that there, those of you who are live streaming will not be able to see the slides, and they will not be recorded on the video. Okay, so you're going to point the camera there. Okay. All right, so always have to be flexible. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we just uh, we thank you in all things and for all things, and so we know that there are times when the technology just doesn't work, but your word always works. It is always sufficient for us in every situation, and we can trust in you that no matter what happens, we can relax and be uh, everything is stable because you are in control. So, Father, now as we study, continue our study of love, help us to understand what this means. It is so contrary to the trends and the orientation of our sin nature that it is always uh, profoundly convicting what it means to love one another as Christ loved us. So, Father, help us to focus on the message and think through its implications. In Christ's name, amen. All right, it's interesting that when I started this sort of sub-series, we were in Ephesians chapter chapter 4, where the passage, I think it's 426, 27, be angry and do not sin. And as a result of that and thinking through that passage, and as I pointed out in terms of the interpretation of the passage, what happens is that something happens like your laptop doesn't work, and the technology fails, and so your, your, your fleshly response from the sin nature is just to get upset, just to get irritated, and, but the passage says don't sin. So what are we supposed to do? You know, how is it that when we encounter a temptation, whether it's something that is uh, coming up through us in terms of an emotional response to circumstances, how do we deal with that? How do we overcome that? The way we do it is through using these spiritual skills. And so we've gone through these spiritual skills, and now we are looking at the skills related to the personal love for God the Father and uh, love for all mankind as well as uh, our love for one another. So what we've learned so far about love is this. First of all, the pattern for understanding love is the cross. John 3.16, Romans 5.8, 1 John 4.9. We look at the cross, we look at God the Father, and what he provided for us on the cross. I mean, that's the focal point. Did we earn or deserve that? Not at all. Was there anything in us that was attractive to God? Not a thing. God loved because of who he is, and it had absolutely nothing to do with who we were. Not only that, we were obnoxious to God. Romans 5.8, 
But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We could put that another way. While we were still rebellious, Christ died for our sins. That's grace. That's the hardest thing in the world for us to understand. I've mentioned this once or twice over the past six months, that in my Friday morning pastor's group, we're looking at a book that was written by a noted theologian. He's Reformed. He is Calvinist covenant theology. His name is Wayne Grudem, and he wrote a small book called Five Ways the Free Grace Gospel Diminishes the Gospel. And that came out in 2016. And over the course of the year or two after that, I think various free grace theologians who have been quoted and raked over the coals by Grudem in a kind way. Um, But, you know, on the one hand, he says, you know, it's not a false gospel. But on the other hand, he says, you're giving people false hope and they can't really know that they're saved. I don't see why that's not a false gospel. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. So we've gone through this, and so I've had people like uh, Jody Dillo and Charlie Bing, Bob Wilkin, a couple of others, have joined us to because they have written a response, basically, or it would be more correct to say they've written a defense. In fact, one book is, is entitled A Defense of the Free Grace Gospel. And though they are responding to Grudem, they are not specifically responding to Grudem. They're just articulating. In fact, one book says five ways the free grace gospel enhances the gospel. So we've had these different speakers on, and uh, Friday morning, our speaker was Charlie Bing. I've known Charlie for uh, 40 years, I think, 30 years at least. Uh, we were in the doctoral program together at Dallas Seminary in the late 80s. And he made a what appears to be just a, a uh, well, of course, that's just a blinding flash of the obvious kind of statement. He said the basic problem, because Charlie gets out, he does conferences, and he speaks, and he's interacted a lot with those who do not hold to a free grace gospel, but who hold to a lordship gospel, which essentially introduces works at one level or another. And he made the clear statement, as simple as it is, people need to hear it. The problem with the other side is they do not understand grace. That's it. They just flat don't understand grace. When you really get down and you're talking and discussing with issues and getting down into the, 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 the roots of everything, they just don't understand what grace means. Grace means it's a free gift totally dependent on who God is. That is an expression of love. That is how we come to understand love. In our human experience, people love other people because they find something attractive in that person. There was nothing attractive in us. The only thing that we had that differed from God's other creatures is that we were created in the image and likeness of God, but that reality was was defaced, corrupted because of sin. So God loved us because of who he is. And because of who he is, uh, Jesus came, entered into human history, taking on uh, human flesh. In fact, as Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, he took on the form of a serpent, of a servant, not a serpent, a servant. And he went to the cross. Now, I was supposed to have taught on that Thursday night and we had to cancel class. But I'll be getting to that this week. What does that mean? And that's very important. We don't have time to digress into that. But that's love. He came to be a servant to us. And he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. Humility is foundational to understanding love. Grace is foundational to understanding love. We really can't understand love if we don't understand both grace and humility. Arrogance, 
which is nothing more than self-absorption, is completely opposite what love is. Now, that's important because I try, try to teach this because there are people who listen, people here maybe, who, and we all need to be reminded of this, who are in a relationship with a spouse whom they love. And often they're young people who, as they grow up, they struggle with understanding love and romantic love, and they need to understand that, that declarations of love without integrity behind it is not worth very much. Because love that is based upon certain details of attraction can disappear if those details of attraction change. And if it's physical attraction, we all know that it's going to change. And it changes a lot over the years. And what matters is character. And so we look at that, we understand that by looking at the cross. Second thing that we've seen is that love for God is measured by obedience, not emotion. Now, some people have trouble with that because you've been brought up in this culture that is that defines love in terms of sentiment, sentimentality, in terms of, of uh, emotion, uh, in terms of certain attraction to the object of love. But once again, we go back to thinking about God. In the Old Testament, we have this word in the Hebrew chesed, which I referred to in the uh, call to worship this morning. And it's a difficult word to translate into English because it doesn't really mean love. And it does, it's often translated steadfast love, which is good. But it takes two or three words to really communicate what it means. And it is God's faithful, loyal love based on a covenant. Now think about that. Because when you say that to a lot of people and you relate that to marriage, which I always do in my wedding ceremonies, you realize that love that is to characterize a marriage is the kind of love God has for us and the kind of God love that God has for Israel. And it's not an emotional love. It's not a sentimental love. Because chesed love is a love that says, I'm going to remain faithful to my side of the covenant, to my side of the contract, even though you're not faithful to your side of the contract. And that's why we call this unconditional love. It is totally dependent upon the, the character, the integrity of the one who is loving. And for the believer, ultimately what that means is when you're in a relationship in marriage, what you are saying, I love you, not because of who I am, but because of who God is. And that's the foundation for why I can love you, because that love never changes no matter how the details change. And so when things may hit a rough patch or things don't go the way that we think they ought to go, we have to be brought back to the reality that just as God entered into a covenant with Israel, and when Israel committed spiritual adultery and when Israel rebelled against God, when Israel was disloyal to God by worshiping other gods, God remained faithful. That's the foundation for understanding the kind of love that should characterize a marriage. And so that's when we say we love God, we have all these passages in Scripture that says that if we love him, we keep his commandments. So we love is is indicated not by emotion, but by obedience to what God says to do. Now, we all fail because we're sinners. And that's where grace comes in, because God forgives us. He wipes the slate clean. And we're going to all of this is going to make a lot more sense as we go through Ephesians 4, 26, down through 5, 1 and into the first part of chapter 5. Almost every one of these verses relates to these spiritual skills. And at the end of Ephesians 4, we're told to graciously forgive, because the word there isn't afiemi for forgiveness. It is another similar word emphasizing grace. It's charizomai. Graciously forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has graciously forgiven you. That's the pattern. And so that you embed that into your children and your grandchildren. Teach them about that because 
they can't ever really love if they don't understand that because forgiveness is is necessary in in love and so uh love for god is measured by obedience not emotion and when we're disobedient he deals with us in grace and our love for god then motivates us. We grow incrementally in our love for God. The more we come to understand His grace, the more we understand the dimensions of His love for us and the work of Christ on the cross for us and all that's involved. The more we understand all that, the more we come to love God because we develop a capacity of appreciation for Him. And then that motivates us to press on to spiritual maturity and to love him e- even more. So that's, that's a cycle. You can think about it in, you know, in everyday life that as, as teenagers go through that rebellious period and they want to be out on their own and take control of their own life, make their own decisions, that as they mature, it's amazing how much smarter their parents get between their age of 20 and 25. They realize their parents knew a whole lot. They may not admit it, but they realize that that the parents their parents knew a whole lot. And so, as they grow through that, they begin to appreciate their parents and love them even more. So this is a, a standard understanding. Now, what we have learned last time is that there are two types of love that are commanded of us. First of all, there's the biblical love for all mankind. That's Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor, whoever that may be. You may not even know them. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan that we studied, is that the, the Samaritan that came along and helped the Jew that had been mugged and left for dead doesn't know him at all. He recognizes that he is in need and he has the means to meet the need. And so he does it even though he knows that this Jew would probably just absolutely hate and despise him because he's a Samaritan. So that, that's the idea of biblical love for all mankind. But the standard there is to love, as we saw last time, is to love your neighbor as yourself. But the command for believers is to love one another as Christ loved us. So the standard is much, much higher. It's a standard that you and I cannot generate on our own. It just doesn't, it won't happen. We can't say, okay, I'm going to be loving today. It doesn't happen. It's a result of your spiritual growth. And that's the Christian love for one another. And second, that Christian love is developed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. It is something that God, the Holy Spirit, produces in us over time. And then third, the love for God the Father is a result of that of our spiritual growth, and in turn it motivates us to love others and one another. And then we learned a definition for Christian love, that love is, first and foremost, it's a mental attitude towards others. It's in the mind. It's not external. It's in your thinking. We have to develop a totally different mindset. We'll be talking about that more in Philippians 2 on Thursday night. Love is a mental attitude towards others which desires the best for them, not according to what I think is best, but according to the standards of God, according to the standards of God's Word. So there's objectivity there. According to the standards of God's integrity and does two things. It first thinks. You know, sometimes we can act in a loving manner, but we're thinking this is just a real jerk and idiot and I'm just going to do this because I have to. So what's happening in our mindset is, is we're not, don't have a mindset that's objectively based on the love, love of God. It is, we're just impatient, but we know, well, I've I got to act nice. See, that, that's ultimately the basis for why, why etiquette developed, why good manners developed. I've always looked for this passage. Maybe somebody will find it. But about 20 or 30 years ago, I was reading a, the, the preface or the introduction to a uh, book on etiquette. And the statement was made, I don't know whether it was 
Emily Post or what one, one of the classics, I think, and this, made the statement that we're all selfish, and the reason we have etiquette is to control our baser, baser desires of selfishness. That's why we learn and teach good manners, so that when we want to get angry at somebody, we're going to treat them in a different manner because we're trained in terms of good manners and courtesy. So it it starts with thinking and then external acts toward them that is consistent with that desire and standards, standards of God. Christian love is impossible apart from a walk by the Spirit and spiritual growth. So we ended last time with application that we are to live our lives as much as possible by walking in partnership with the Holy Spirit toward the goal of spiritual maturity. That is a definition of biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship isn't having a social at the church where we get together. Biblical fellowship always has Christ at its center. But ultimately what we see in the scriptures is biblical fellowship is an action idea, Fellowship isn't passive, it's not static, it's an action idea of walking by the Holy Spirit toward a common goal, which in the Scripture is spiritual maturity. So last time we ended with this, that was the first point of application, that we need to walk by the Spirit. Second, we need to think and pray about our reactions to others when we know we are not exhibiting Christian love. That's difficult. Lord, I'm supposed to love this person, and they're just an obnoxious, nasty, violent, abusive individual. And the only way you're going to make me be courteous... Now, that doesn't mean you have to put yourself in a position of vulnerability or danger, but you have to get that mental attitude right. And that's produced by the Holy Spirit as we continue to walk and continue to grow. Third, don't get discouraged. We're going to fail a lot. But God, the Holy Spirit, is going to keep working on us until we develop that. And we can look back and see growth. Does that mean that we won't fail, uh, still fail a lot? No, it doesn't mean you won't still fail a lot because you still have that nasty sin nature. But you're going to see that God, the Holy Spirit, produces this change in you, and it's not something you just ginned up on your own. So that's our application. So what I want to do this today, just kind of put this back into perspective. As we build the spiritual skills, we have the, the foundation is really we confess sin, we're back walking by the Spirit. As we walk by the Spirit, we trust God. We call it the faith rest drill. We trust in God's promises and we relax in His provision. Second, we're oriented to grace. You cannot love if you don't understand grace. Love is selfishness unless you understand grace. It's undeserved kindness, unmerited favor. So grace orientation and doctrinal orientation, where we orient our thinking to what the Word of God teaches. This leads us as we mature to understand that we live today in light of eternity. That this is our training ground. We're in boot camp for the millennial kingdom. And God is training us today. And so it takes time. And the, the spiritual growth and spiritual capacities we develop today are going to be what go with us when we die. Can't take your car with you. Can't take your dog with you. Can't take your best friends with you. You can only take your spiritual maturity with you. That's the only thing that converts into eternal life. So then we get up here and we have three more that work together that are interdependent. Our personal love for God, our biblical love for all mankind, and our Christian love for other believers, and then our occupation with Christ. These three work together and then it develops our joy, our stability, our contentment in life. So we've been using this diagram of the uh, soul fortress, and when we are, when we sin, we're outside. Well, I can't use a pointer. 
when we're sin, we're outside. To get inside, we confess sin, and we're back inside the soul fortress. And the walls that protect us, that keep us inside, are using those all of those different spiritual skills. So the base foundation is being filled by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and then we have uh, faith, rest, drill, loving God, all of those things that we have been studying. So the connection between these things is that the personal love for God provides the motivation. Second, biblical love for all mankind or Christian love for one another is evidence of our being a student of the Word. That's what Jesus said. By this, what? Your love for one another. Will all everyone know you are my disciples? Not that you're a believer. A believer is someone who's trusted Christ and now has everlasting life, but a disciple is someone who wants to move to maturity and become a student of the Scriptures and student of the Lord. And that's going to lead to occupation with Christ, we'll get to next time. But I just want to get, give you a taste of that. In Hebrews 12.1, we read, Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. All those Old Testament saints is what he's talking about. They have all been witness to the faithfulness of God and the truth of God's revelation. He said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. That's going back to the principle of confession of sin moving forward in our spiritual life. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That is the course that God has set before us. And how do we do that with endurance? Because we are looking at Jesus. That is our occupation with Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who what? For the joy set before him. That's another reason I put joy up there at the top. Because as we get there, we're running because... We want to hear the Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's where we're headed as we go through this. We are to lay aside every weight and the sin that easily ensnares us and for the joy set before him. So this only happens if we're using these spiritual skills. So today what I want to do is look at these characteristics. So I'll try to make up a little time from all the problems that we had. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, a couple of points. I think I have seven or eight points on introduction to this. In these first seven verses of this chapter, Paul is demonstrating in one of the most beautiful pieces of literature and prose that's ever been written, the excellence and centrality of love for the spiritual life. The first three verses, he basically says, no matter what, if love, biblical love, the fruit of the Spirit love isn't there, No matter how much you think you're serving the Lord, no matter how much you think you're doing as a Christian, if you don't have love, it's worthless. It's nothing. It's the sine qua non. That is a Latin phrase meaning without which nothing. Okay? It's the sine qua non of the spiritual life, Christian life serving the Lord. In verse 1... The contrast focuses on the gift of tongues, which is truly, it should be translated the gift of languages. Because that's how the word tongues was used to refer to languages when the Bible was translated in the King James, and it's just been kept that way. It's an antiquated term. So there's a gift of languages that was a temporary spiritual gift. We'll get into that a little bit later. And what Paul is saying here is if you have these spiritual gifts, which the Corinthians were making a big deal about, if you have the gift of languages, you have the gift of prophecy and knowledge and faith, if you don't have love, they're they're worthless. He's setting up a hypothetical, though. We'll get into that in just a minute. 
In verse 3, it focuses on examples of pseudo-spirituality, that is, religious activity, self-sacrifice that's going on. And even if you do those things, if you don't have love, it's nothing. So love is the key here. The noun, which is rarely used outside the New Testament, is agape. It's used ten times in this chapter. That tells us that that's what the chapter is all about. It's describing love for us. Now, this chapter appears to be an anakaluthon, which means the writer appears to be have shifted his topic from chapter 12, and he's running down a rabbit trail. But an anakaluthon is often a literary device where you're, you've said something, and now you want to say something in addition to it, and then bring both of those things together for what you're going to say as you go forward. And so that's what this is. An anakaluthan is a, a, a statement like the one on the left, and you're talking about one thing at the beginning, and then the deep rumble from the explosion began to shake the very bones of, and then you pause, and you say, no one had ever felt anything like it. So the last part of the sentence seems unrelated to the first part, but the two come together. A sentence whose two pieces do not fit together grammatically. So this also occurs when you're reading a story and all of a sudden there's a a diversion and you're wondering why you're going down this other track and eventually they come back together. So first of all, what we're learning in our order is that biblical love for all mankind and love for one another is, is mandated of us. But that is predicated upon our personal love for God. And that is built on grace orientation. That's the order. Grace orientation is what you learn. The first evidence of grace orientation is the cross. You understand Christ died for your sins. You didn't do anything to earn or deserve that. He graciously gives us salvation. It's a free gift. And as a result of that, we, we begin to love God at that point. Now, it's the love of an infant, And you all have had experience with babies and their love for their parents. They love their parents because their parents are nearby, they're warm, they provide for them, they're feeding them, uh, they're nurturing them, and they enjoy that. But that's that's an infant's love. But as you grow and mature, then by the time you're in your 30s or 40s, you have a, a much greater love for your parents. It's a mature love. So it's not like we don't love God at the beginning, we do, but it's an infant's love. It's a spiritual baby's love, and it takes time time to grow. And the reason I point that out is when we look at passages like Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And some people have the impression that that means, well, I've got to be mature and really have a, a more mature love for God, or this isn't true for me. And the phrase, to those who love God, relates to every believer because it goes on to say to those who are called according to his purpose that's every believer okay so even baby believers know how to love god like a baby knows how to love okay it's just a a a, an infantile love so the sixth point in introduction is that this chapter fits the broader context that's introduced back in chapter 8 verse 1 Remember, I always emphasize context. You've got to put put it in its place in the flow of what the writer is saying in the book. Too many people just spend so much time on the details of the passage at hand that they misinterpret it because they take the text out of the context, and so you're left with the con job. So starting in 8.1, Paul makes the statement that knowledge makes arrogant. Now, the word there for knowledge is gnosis, not epinosis. And we've all seen this. We've all gone through this stage where we learn a lot, and we're just as arrogant as we can be. And you've never seen arrogance like that unless you go to seminary because you're learning at a rate that's about 100 times faster than you could possibly grow. And so you get a lot of knowledge, but you don't know how to use all that knowledge correctly yet. So um, that's, that's his point. That's sort of a topical sentence for what comes later. So he deals with things in 8, 9, and 10 
such as food sacrifice to idols, exercise love towards the immature believer, the weak believer, and at times you can do X, Y, or Z that's not prohibited in Scripture, but there may be cultural uh, mores that 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 you say, well, I'm I'm just not going to do this. So that's an application of love. Then you have order of worship in terms of of uh, the role of the sexes and in terms of or, right order uh, towards God in the Lord's table. And then in 12 to 14, it's dealing with love in relation to the, to the spiritual gifts. And so these were all out of order in the Corinthian church because they were all bragging about, well, I did this and I did that, and I've got the gift of languages, and I've got the gift of healing. And so their emphasis was on all these supernatural things, and nobody was growing, and they were all divided over arrogance. That's what the first two or three chapters are all about is how divided they are over arrogance. So we have to understand this. This 8-1 plays a role in understanding what happens in love because it says, in fact, in some translations we'll say knowledge puffs up. I think that's the King James. When we get the descriptions of love coming up, love does not puff up. In other words, love is not arrogant. Arrogance and love are mutually exclusive. So if you don't learn humility, you'll never develop the capacity to love. Seventh, this chapter skewers the Corinthian believers as much as the modern, self-absorbed, self-indulgent, 21st century uh, believer overwhelmed by emotion, biblically illiterate, theologically impoverished, and morally bankrupt, who probably never listens to good Bible teaching. I cannot tell you how many times... Now, I don't have a church phone anymore, so I never hear this anymore. But back when I did have a church phone sitting on my desk, uh, how many people call up and say, oh, you have Bible teaching. I can't wait to come. I want some good Bible teaching. And they would come and show up, and you'd never see them again. Because whatever it is that they have been exposed to in the generic, uh, emotion-driven evangelical churches is what they identify as Bible teaching. When they hear real Bible teaching, it scares them to death, and they don't come back. I developed a rule of thumb that I've shared this with other pastors. It's Robbie's rule number one, that the more excited a person is when they first come to visit this church and comes and tells me about it, the shorter the amount of time I will see them. So I can guarantee somebody comes up here, their first time at church, they come up after, oh, that was so great. I've been looking for this kind of teaching. That was tremendous. And I'll look at my wife, and we just have a, you know, share a common thought there that, yeah, we'll never see them again. And I've shared that with other pastors, and they say, that is absolutely true. But there are people who will come, and they'll have that same excitement. Boy, that, and they don't tell me. They might tell somebody else. They might tell God, but they don't tell me. And they'll be back, and they'll hang in there. But the ones who come up and tell me about it, I'll never see them again. And I have never seen an exception to that rule, even though I have thought several times that, well, this will probably be an exception. There's no exceptions. So chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians puts our Christian service in its proper perspective. So these are the first three verses. And a lot of people have trouble understanding them. These are hypotheticals. Uh, And each one of them ends up, is basically structured this way. Let's consider this situation if, if, and it's just an assumption on the basis of, of, for debate. Let's say I had all the spiritual gifts and I had everything you could possibly imagine. If I don't have love, then it's worthless no matter how much I have. And so in each one of these, there's, a, there's an if statement followed by, but do not have love. And then it says, I'm nothing. And that's basically what the illustration is at the end of verse 1. So you have these third-class conditions. And a third-class condition in Greek, there's four different ways in which a, in Greek you can clearly express a hypothetical. That's an if clause. In English, all we can say is if. But they would say, if such and so, three different ways. If, and I'm assuming this is true, 
then this will happen. That Satan said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, first class condition, you are the Son of God, then do this. Okay? Then you have a second class condition, which is more along the lines of if and it's not true. We're assuming that this, this initial proposition isn't true, then this would follow. And then the third class is closer to what we would think of as maybe yes, maybe no. The grammar says that it's, it's presenting a general uh, condition. And uh, it has the idea of a hypothetical situation. That's what we have here. It could talk about sometimes a more probable future occurrence, but, but here we have a hypothetical situation. So hypothetically speaking, if I had all these spiritual gifts, if I spoke with languages of men and angels but didn't have love. Now, when we talk about this thing with languages, there's a lot of confusion today because of tongues, and trust me, it's not a spiritual gift today for a lot of reasons, and you can go out. I've done a lot of series on this, so we're not going to talk about that uh, today. And it's speaking with languages. I'll give you one quick illustration. I always love, love it. I haven't had this happen in a long time, but, but I've had people say, but my prayer life is so much more effective when I pray in tongues. I say, really? Do you understand what you say? No. Well, how do you know it's effective? You don't know what you prayed for. So, I speak with the languages of men and of angels. So the word tongues indicates human languages, or in this case, all, uh, angelic language. Do you know there's not a single example in all of the Bible of an a- angel speaking anything other than a human language? So we have no revelatory information that the angels have a different language. Now, maybe we could assume that for argument's sake, but we can't base it on anything. Now, what's interesting with the Corinthians, now, the Corinthians live down on, I don't have a map up here, live on the uh, upper part of the Peloponnesian Peninsula in the southern part of Greece. And just north of of the city of Corinth, there's an isthmus. Okay, you have you have two two seas, two gulfs that are coming off of the Adriatic Sea, and I forget the other one, um, Aegean Sea. And you have these two, uh, Adriatic and Aegean, that's what they are. Anyway, so you have these two coming together. And there's a narrow strip of land. That's, a, that's an isthmus. And just north of that isthmus is the an area called Delphi. Usually people pronounce it Delphi, but it's Delphi. And this is where they had a priestess who is called the Oracle because she gave prophecies. What was later discovered is that that inside of her little sacred sanctuary, there was an opening that went deep into the earth. And so the assumption is there were these fumes that came up and would put her into some sort of uh, ecstatic state. And so she would give these prophecies. And they're like this. Creasus, who was one of the wealthiest uh, kings in the ancient world, is the king of Lydia, uh, was faced with the um, coming armies of Persia in their attack. So he sent a series of questions to the oracle. And the oracle responded that if uh, Creasus made war on the Persians, he would destroy a mighty empire. Notice how nebulous that is. Now, he took it that he would destroy the mighty empire of the Persians, but the mighty empire that was destroyed was his own. So so that, that's a trouble with fortune tellers. They say things in a certain way that it could be applied to just about any situation. Thomas Hobbes wrote about this oracle and said, and for incoherent speech, see, that's what it was. She wasn't speaking in language. Everything she said was in some sort of ecstatic utterance gibberish. He says it was incoherent speech. It was among the Gentiles taken for one sort of prophecy because the prophets of their oracles intoxicated with a spirit or vapor from the cave of the Pythian 
oracle at Delphi. Do you know another English word that relates to Pythian? Look at the first four letters. Python. That was her symbol, a a serpent. Where do we find a serpent in the Bible? She was the Pythian oracle at Delphi, were for a time really mad and spake like mad men, and of whose loose words a sense might be made to fit any event. In such a sort as all bodies are said to be made of materia prima. Anyway, the point I'm making here is just that this was incoherent speech. So this is what what Paul is saying here. Even if I were able to speak with all possible languages, human and angelic, if I don't have love, then I've just become like a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Literally, he's saying, better translation, I would have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, why does he use those terms? He uses those because the gongs and the cymbals are used in the worship of pagan idols. Because you've got to make a lot of noise to get their attention. Because they may be taking a nap. It, it just, it, the sarcasm here is thick. Now, we live in a world today, sarcasm towards other people's religions is considered rude. Based on what God does, it's the right thing to do. You should, like, like when Elijah's up on the mountain and he's trying to encourage the priests of Baal. Oh, come on. He's asleep. He went to the bathroom. Keep, keep yelling. And they're cutting themselves and all kinds of things in order to get Baal's attention. Of course, there's no Baal. So that's what Paul is saying. I've become a, I'm just as meaningless as the instruments that the pagan priests use to get the pagan gods' attention. Verse 2, same kind of structure. And if, or and even though I had the gift of prophecy and understood all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith. See, nobody has all of that. That's the reason I underlined all. It tells you he's not talking about a possible real situation It's just a a hypothetical hyperbole. He's exaggerating for the sake of effect. Even if I could do everything so that I could move mountains and had all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I don't have love, I have nothing. What's the point? It doesn't matter how God's gifted you. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how attractive you are. It doesn't matter how many things you can do. If you're not doing it in the framework of biblical love, then it's worthless. And that's the third situation. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So in both of these cases, you're doing something. You're giving something. It's, it's religious activity. I, I, I'm, I'm showing off what I can do to help other people, and God's going to grace me for that. Now, some of you will have a translation that doesn't say giving my body to be burned, it says that I might boast. But the difference in these two words is that green letter in the middle, calcasomai with what looks like an X, it's the Greek key, and versus calthasomai with a theta, that I might be burned. But the first one is, is, is pro- has the best support but uh, and is in the majority of manuscripts. So that's why I translate it. Uh, it's the second one. Excuse me, I got confused. There. I give my body to be burned. That's kalthasemai. So it's it's religious activity and self-sacrifice. That ought to impress God. But if it's not doesn't have love, it's nothing. It doesn't profit anything. So that brings us to the characteristics. And due to the problems we had earlier, um, we're running behind. But I'm, I'll end there and come back and talk about the characteristics uh, next time. But that shows us that the centrality of uh, of love for the Christian life, and it's not talking about the flesh-based love that even uh, unbelieving uh, Israelites could could generate, having love for their neighbor and just loving them like they love themselves. It's talking about the kind of love that is generated by the Holy Spirit. Because that's the kind of love that is genuine, and that's the kind of love that demonstrates that we are disciples of Christ. And we only get there if we're growing and maturing. 
And that means that we just we're in the Word to let the Word get inside of us, and it, and God the Holy Spirit to transform us. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a year or two. Now a great deal can happen in a year or two. Paul is telling the Corinthians, and at the end of First Corinthians two and beginning of First Corinthians three, he's telling them, "How long have I been away from you?" three years, and you should be mature by now. Well, we know there's different levels of maturity. There's the maturity of a 20-year-old, who's certainly not an adolescent or child, and there's the maturity of a 30- or 40-year-old or a 60- or 70-year-old. And what Paul is saying, you should be beyond childish things. So we, we all, I believe, knowing this congregation as I do, have probably come pretty close to at least a a late adolescence. Some of you are younger believers than others, but it takes time to grow. And the more we grow, and I've had this conversation with several people over the last several weeks as I've talked about this, is that that sometimes we all have made this comment, I just don't seem to have ever been able to really get past this XYZ sins that I'm committing. The problem is that we're more aware of them. You weren't aware. I know I wasn't aware of as many sins that are in my life when I was 20 or 30 as I am now. Because the more that we grow in an understanding of the Scriptures and who God is, the more we realize the depths of our depravity, even as believers, and the many ways in which we just we, we disappoint ourselves and we know we're just not applying what we need to. We're all going to be glad when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. But until then, we need to grow and develop our, our, our capacity for love and preparation for what we will do in the kingdom and in eternity with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word, to be able to recognize that, that we fail in many ways, we sin in many ways, But your grace always meets us where we are. Your grace is always there to forgive us. You describe the pattern for that forgiveness by confessing sin, 1 John 1, 9, and then moving on. Sometimes in life it seems like we're confessing sin every other minute uh, just because of the circumstances we're in. But your grace always meets us. You never say, well, you know, I'm really tired. You confess that sin 10,000 times. I'm just not going to forgive it the next time. So we're just thankful for your grace and your goodness. And we pray that through God, the Holy Spirit, we will continue to grow, press on, and be steadfast in endurance. Father, we pray for those who are here today or who are listening online, that they might understand the gospel of grace, that Christ died for your sins. We can't do anything about our sins because we're sinful. We can't do anything for them. Christ came, he entered into human history, took on true humanity so that he could go to the cross and die for our sins. He did it all. So, Father, we are thankful for that, and we pray that you would make the gospel so clear to anyone who is listening today, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.